it. Welcome to Strata Stories. My name is Thomas Schreiber, and I'm the Director of Marketing here at Strata. Strata is a single EMR platform and revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy practices that helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. On today's episode, Paul Singh, the CEO of Strata, talks with Stephen Cohen, the CEO of Sarah Health, a company that helps you increase your practice's revenue with RTM. Paul and Stephen talk through how much your clinic can make with RTM, what clinic owners misunderstand about RTM, and the overall benefits of implementing it. If you'd like to learn more about Strata, head over to stratapt.com or email us at hello at stratapt.com. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. So, Stephen, here's the thing, man. RTM. It's one of those things to me where I feel like the more and more I talk about it with our clients, the more it's sort of like, I don't know, I just feel like I get lame excuses about why people aren't doing it. And it's usually, I don't have like a, you know, any skin in the game here, right? Just feels like I'll talk to a bunch of our clients and every once in a while, like I'll, I'll be like, oh, hey, so what's your plan with RTM? Inevitably, some of the comments I'll get kind of feel hand wavy. They're, they're like, oh, it seems like a lot of work for not a lot of juice. It seems like one more thing to me for me to put on my providers and God, it's hard to hire people these days. And I just don't want to add one more thing to their plate. So if I'm hearing that and I'm not even like in RTM software, <laughs> you must hear it more. So what is that just kind of fake excuses or something like that? What's the deal? What's why is everybody pushing back against RTM? It feels like <laughs> it's fair. And we hear that too. There seems to be an assumption that has been perpetuated by a lot of software out there that it can't be simple. And I think that's really what the the concern is. These practice owners and leaders are thinking, there is no way this can be easy. There's no way this can be simple. That's the true barrier to this. And then you can make up everything after that, right? So there's your foundational, okay, there's no way this can be simple. And so then I can make all the myriad of problems that, that you are you just cited some of the, the more hand wavy. And I think the in particular is 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 the juice worth the squeeze? It's like, well, you did MIPS. So you can't say both of those things of like, oh, we're going to invest a ton of time, money, effort, resources, everything else into MIPS for maybe 1%, I think, right? For for some folks. And we're not going to do RTM, which we've seen be able to provide you know double digit increases to net income. Those two things don't go together, right? They, they can't exist logically. But you said something like you've seen double digit increases for people using RTM. What can you just talk about that? What what does that mean? Yeah, you know, one of our, our our clients, they're really, really uniquely located. So they're right here. There are three senior living facilities, uh, like basically this cul-de-sac, and they are right there. They're 90, 95% Medicare, I think. Uh, I've got about five providers outside of Chicago, Illinois. And for them, they are just crushing it. But they were so worried about the start of this year where, okay, now those 3 to 4% Medicare cuts are going to hit them uniquely hard, right, versus other practices that may have a, a better payer mix. 
And so for them, they, they didn't feel like they really had a choice if they wanted to continue to provide the one-on-one -on -one care that they do, be able to continue with a personalized approach. Like, look, we don't want to become, you know, one of the big box stores that is cycling four people in in an hour. That's just not the, the care that we want to deliver. But we're now getting put in between a rock and a hard place to figure something out. And so for, for them do some back of the envelope math on average they're getting about 30 patients per clinician billable on any given month right and so if you just say medicare okay let's say it averages out to 60 dollars, right it's 76 for the first month 57 thereafter 60 is a nice a nice round number if each practitioner is generating an extra 1800 dollars a month of which about 75 percent of that is going to be almost straight to the bottom line Right, that's a, a massive change to your net income at the end of the month and at the end of the year. Multiply that by five, it gets even better for this one practice. And that's for just Medicare. And as we're seeing the commercial reimbursement start to, I think it's always been there, but people have just been too scared or reluctant, scared, reluctant, I guess maybe a little bit of A, a little bit of B, to bill for the the commercial insurances for a variety of reasons, which we can absolutely get into. You know, we're seeing some blue blues plans paying a hundred bucks for that engagement code per 30 days. And if, you know, for our pricing model about in that specific, so a hundred dollars around, you know, 85% of that is going to go more or less to the bottom line outside of some additional, you know, effort for your, your clinician, however you want to pay that. We have some ideas on how to do that, but if you're only making, let's say $15 in margin per visit, and then you can throw $75 in margin from a single RTM month. Well, that's five visits. That's that's major, major money. And so I think just looking at it from, is this worth it from a top line perspective? Like, oh, man, I get like, you know, $70, $80 for a visit and I'm only going to get 57 for a, a month of RTM. Well, th maybe that doesn't make as much sense, but that's a, a, a really incorrect way to look at it because that's not apples to apples because it's higher margin reimbursement than a, a visit. That's a subtle but really important point that I don't think a lot, enough people think about. And, and, you know, you and I come from outside the healthcare world, right? And so in the tech world, when I come in as the, on the investor side, one of the things we really talk about is sort of lifetime value per account. And it's a nerdy way of talking about every additional dollar you can earn off of an existing client is, is essentially going directly to the bottom line. And I feel like that's not something that people talk about or think about on the business side of healthcare these days, which I would just say, just to recap what I think you're saying in, in sort of layman's terms, it's like, you're already seeing the patient, you're already going to bill for that, you're already going to have to then subsequently fight with the lower reimbursement rates year over year, you're already doing all this stuff to turn on something that would, you know, essentially create a higher lifetime value of, of dollars per existing account. I mean, it just, it's almost like you kind of have to do it. A no-brainer is what we hear a lot. Like, this is a no-brainer from when folks finally start to, to get into it. We, we, we hear that. I think the other thing that may be outside the scope today, but just worth mentioning is that I think the other thing is, is that people kind of seem to, at least the ones I talk to, seem to in their thoughts and their actions and their behaviors when they think about RTM, they're sort of thinking about the patient demographic as this sort of fixed, finite set of people. And depending on payer mix, it's almost always like, I'm gonna get, I'll probably get 
no friends for saying it this way, but they're like, oh, it's just all older people. They don't understand tech. It's just not worth it. And it sort of falsely implies that there's not new patients coming down the pipe over the next couple quarters. Like, right? Like people are constantly aging in and the expectations are different. Like my mom is in the demographic and maybe 10 years ago, the idea of giving her like something that was RTM would be like crazy. But now she sort of expects it. <laughs> like, and if she doesn't get it, she's going on YouTube, which is terrifying and amazing. But, you know, it's, it is what it is. Okay, so we talk, like, as we talk about those objections, though, like, are you seeing other objections in your line of work with Sarah that I'm not seeing? So, you know, I kind of implied I'm hearing, oh, it's complicated. It's not worth it, you know, whatever. But are you hearing other objections commonly as well? One of the things that we've been hearing a lot recently, especially now that the belief that commercial payers won't pay for this is starting to die away like it should. It's in medical policies. You can look at it all up. Like, And we've seen great reimbursement for our clients across Blues, United. United actually in particular is pretty darn good about RTM, Humana, Cigna, and others. And we talked to with a large uh, group that has a, it's in about 40 states and that they're at the point now where they assume payment. We just assume any market we roll this out in is going to get good payment on the commercial side. So like that's that's their mindset and it's, and it's becoming ours as, as well. One thing we hear is concern about the patient having to pay more. And so, oh, you know, the patient's on a high deductible plan and they're going to have to pay for this out of pocket. And so there's, I think there's, there's two things there. One is I consider myself a, so at least a decently educated patient now, but I probably wouldn't notice like, oh, that, that was more expensive, but like it is what it is, right? In, in the same way that providers, you know, they get paid what they get paid and they're kind of like, well, it is what it is. Like patients, we think a lot of it the same and we don't have the curse of knowledge that these practice leaders have of exactly how it all works, right? And I think it's, it's this truly this curse of knowledge. Um, you know, my wife's a nurse practitioner and we have a, a one-year-old and, and everything is the worst possible thing it could be, right? Um, I've heard more diseases thrown out that I never knew existed because of it, right? This curse of knowledge. And I think that's a piece of it. But on the other hand, I think it also might be incorrect. So we're doing some analysis right now and some research with a, a practice that we've been working with for, gosh, it'll be a year here soon. We took one of their clinicians, split out uh, the patients into Sarah and non-Sarah patients and are now reviewing all the photo scores and outcomes from those patients. And what we're seeing, it's early, and you know we're not going to publish this. We'll probably do something else more bigger that we will publish. But what we're seeing is patients needing a couple fewer visits to achieve the same outcome. And so like, okay, well, the total cost of care goes down for that patient. So, hey, patient, instead of saying it's like an insurance policy for your insurance policy, right? Hey, we're going to put you on this, this technology you're going to most likely be more adherent, more engaged, more empowered throughout the process. You're probably going to require a visit or two less. And as a practice owner, I'm okay with that because my margin overall is going to go up. So instead of making $250 on that episode, I make $300 and can pay my clinician more and require fewer visits. And then you get into access. And, and Paul, you were just you know talking about 
how the the patient demographic you know is changing will continue to change right well well then if all of a sudden you can free up some of that that clinic space you can do what some of our other practices uh, in particular this one in, in Michigan has done which they've taken the adherence data as well as now a new business model that they can operate under and go to the primary care referrals uh, physician referral sources and saying hey what do you think PT means like oh it's like it's a box. It's 12 visits in six weeks. That's what physical therapy is. Well, what if we could break that for you? And how many more patients or what patients would you send us if we said we could do an eval into RTM? And they've already seen now some low to mid acuity patients flowing into their clinic from these referral sources because now they're not constrained in their mind for the referral to, oh, this has to be someone who is willing to go for 12 visits, is willing to you know, dedicate thousands of dollars, right? All of those resource allotments that was in the PCP's mind of, oh, I can only, I only want to give this to patients who will get that value from it. Well, now it's, oh, you can just help any of my patients and I don't have to give them, you know, the, the inset or, you know, prescribe another pain pill. Sweet. Like, I, I love this idea. Um, I know that's kind of going off a little bit of a tangent, but there's multiple things there that we're seeing and I'm getting really excited about for, for the future. I think it sort of speaks to the complexity and, and potentially the upside that's here. And I think I'll preface what I'm about to say with we don't have any skin in this game. You know, we're not we're just sort of on the billing side, the, the EMR side and all that. But with that caveat in place, I would just say that from a directional standpoint, we're headed towards more RTM, not less. We're heading towards, and I say that more very broadly, like to your point about more payers accepting it, probably, yeah. I suspect there's going to be more codes over time, more, just, there's just going to be more RTM, not less. And I think part of it's going to be driven by the fact that it, it does drive better patient outcomes. And I, it'll be interesting to see that, that report you guys pull together. But I also think it's going to be driven by what patients really want. Prior to COVID, the idea of telehealth visits was foreign. <laughs> and now three, four years into the whole, I don't think we're in a pandemic anymore. But anyway, the point is three, four years after telehealth really sort of blew out and became sort of mainstream, I don't go to the doctor, you know, unless the, the virtual telehealth person says, hey, this is a little outside the scope. You need to come in. So I, I don't know. Maybe that's a little hand wavy, but. RTM today sort of feels like where general telehealth was three or four years ago. And I think there is going to be sort of a first mover advantage for practices that kind of pick it up here ASAP. Completely agree. And you can see they started out in, in 2022, right? It was only for musculoskeletal and the respiratory system. In 2023, they added uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. 2024, I don't believe they're adding any more systems, but now they're allowing uh, federally qualified health centers as well as uh, RHCs to be able to bill on top of their lump sum payment. So they're still adding to it in a different way, as well as I think they're talking about the general surgery, like the, the bundle payments and being able to have this on top of that as the RTM codes on top of that as well. You know, that's proposed, right? So still to, to be seen on, on what Medicare ultimately decides to do. And then you get into a little bit too, like it's not RTM, but these caregiver education codes are super interesting as well, especially when I think of our clients that are in the senior living. So whether that be assisted or independent setting. And I think about, you know, one of the reasons I get so passionate about this is um, 
my, my grandpa has battled Parkinson's for over over a decade now, and there was a, a a lapse in PT and OT when he was in the hospital, and nothing short of criminal. We'll leave it there, but nothing short of, of criminal. And seeing uh, when I went out and visited him and, and my grandma last, seeing how important the OT in particular the impact that that OT had in training my grandma how to better help him get out of bed, use the walker, like those things. 100% we should be paying for that. Like, holy cow, that is such valuable, valuable information. And and so much, you know, both IQ, so right, the, the, the intelligence and the studying and everything that got to that clinical expertise to be that high. But I'd say as well as the EQ, right, and, and that, that emotional understanding of, Hey, I, I can help understand what you're going through. Now I'm going to teach you how to be able to help either yourself or your loved one, right? And and to date, that's all been donated, and it it shouldn't be anymore. So I, I think there's a whole avenue there, and 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 we could talk about that if you want to. But it's just been donated, right? Like, hey, this is what we do. You get home exercises. I'll answer that email. I'll answer that call. I'll answer that text. And it's just been the the status quo. And stop. You're artificially deflating the true cost of care to all these payers, so they they're not actually paying for everything that you're delivering. Like that doesn't make sense. You can't do that because if you do that, then they cut from there, not from what you're actually delivering. And I think that's part of what's gotten us into this this reimbursement problem. There's a mismatch because. Payers look at the, and you know this better than I do, right? But the payers look at what codes have been billed, and that is the assumed care that was delivered. And so if you just have this bucket of, oh, here's a bunch of other cool stuff that we do that our patients really like and are extremely valuable and helps them with our adherence, and it's not there, it's not in the claim file, then like it didn't happen, at least to the, the payer. And that's artificially deflating the true cost of, of care. Earlier, you started going down this path of talking about 2022, 2023, and what's proposed in 2024. I'll preface this question by saying, obviously, nobody knows the future, but we all like to be armchair quarterbacks. So based on what you have seen and kind of your your instinct for the future, what, what does the next five years of RTM look like? You know, it's easy for me on the outside to just wave my hands and say, well, there's more RTM. What does that actually mean? So from your perspective, what what does RTM look like? five years out. I think you're going to continue to see uh, systems get added. I wouldn't be surprised if wound care in particular came through over the course of the next few years. That that makes sense to, to me. So, so seeing other systems get added, that, that makes sense, um, especially anything that can be picture related, right, where it's still patient self-reported and doesn't fit into a device function like uh, the remote patient monitoring side. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see Different systems like, I guess that would fall under pathology, I believe, for, for wound care. It probably isn't five years, but I could see in 10 years that RTM as we know it goes away. And it's the carrot right now, it's the carrot to value-based care. And at some point, the proverbial stick will, will come. And so I wouldn't be surprised if RTM doesn't exist in a decade and instead been replaced by something probably more complex, which to your earlier point, like if you don't get on it now, I'd much rather learn how to ride a bike with training wheels than get thrown on a gas powered one <laughs> and told me, oh, good luck for my first first time around. 
that's what I think will, will happen, um, if not in the Medicare space, at least in the commercial space. I think it's also very possible what we're already seeing with the data is, okay, I can, based on how someone is responding within the first few days, we already know if they're going to be in what level they're going to engage at for basically the rest of the episode of care based on all the other patients that we've flown through. So with that data and knowing that within five days, I very much see a business model and, and a product for us where we're able to tell that either whether it's the clinician or the practice leader, whoever, like, hey, Paul has been you know, verbose in his responses. And based on what we know of past patients like Paul, he is likely to continue to be engaged throughout the entirety of the plan of care. We think you can go to a longer cadence in between visits to be able to do that. You sh would have, you know, in a pre-RTM scenario or pre-SARA scenario, you would have seen Paul 12 times. We think you can see him eight, charge United for 10, and that's you being able to have shared savings there. So I, I think ultimately that's where it's it's going to go. You talked about sort of the, there were three levels. Number one, how practice owners are thinking about RTM. The second, how what you're seeing at the provider level, there's some stories there, I think. And then the third level, I think, was patient level. Particularly, there was a patient, you know, go 30 for 30. There's a story around that. So however you want to talk about that concept, whether it's all three levels or one of them, you know, we had made a note that there was like something really interesting about the way you were talking about that. Perfect. Yeah, ha happy to do that. So yeah, the three core groups, right, that are involved in this, you have the patient, the provider, and the practice leader owner, right? I, and those are the, the three core groups. And we've had you know, challenges and, and successes in, in, in all three uh, that we've seen. And one of our, on the patient side, a couple of cool stories that I think are, are worth telling. One is our first patient to go 30 for 30, right? So these codes, uh, at least the engagement code 9977, operates on 30-day cadences, right? And so our first patient to go 30 for 30, we're pumped. Like, oh, 100% adherence? This is sweet. So we emailed the patient and said, hey, can we talk to you? We love to learn about your experience. And, da, 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 da. and we get a, a very short response of no. I don't want to talk to you. We were so confused. How? I don't understand. Like you obviously got value out of this, I think, or else we're missing some huge, you know, insight here. And so we we called the the therapist, uh, his, his PT, said, "Hey, what's going on with this? We're really kind of concerned. Like what what's going on?" And the therapist said, "Oh, well, that patient had an accident about a year, year and a half ago and lost 90% of his hearing. He doesn't like the way that he sounds. And so even in clinic, his all his answers were typically one, two words tops. And having the ability to communicate in between visits in a way that was prompted and, and focused allowed them to really flourish and in, in their patient and provider relationship. So it was a real unlock for that patient and in his care, as well as his relationship with his his PT. So that was 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 super cool to get that. Another recent story which uh, you you might find interesting is about 90% of patients believe that our daily question is generated by their therapist. So they're they're so accurate that 
they think it's their PT legitimately checking up on them every single day, which is great. Like we, I want to make that a hundred percent. We had an intern mistake and it actually ended up being a really cool experiment that we won't run again. We accidentally set one of our clinicians, uh, all their patients to Spanish uh, and none of them speak Spanish uh, as we learned. And so we saw just the non-standard response just shoot through the roof for this one PT, like what's going on? Figured out we had sent all his patients uh, on that Sunday, sent them all the, the Spanish version of the, the text that day. And the responses were hilarious. Like, ha ha ha, Mike, I haven't taken Spanish since third grade. And we're just sitting there. Holy cow. You, this is good enough to where you think your PT sent you a text in Spanish? That's amazing. That's <laughs> that, like, okay. We're on to something. We, we, I think we have something here. So that was, that was a couple of interesting stories um, that on, on the patient side, on the therapist side, I think two I'll highlight are one, uh, which was, so we automatically triage every single non-standard response. And, you know, it's part of our, 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 our platform uh, is 90 to 95% of our responses are one character or one word. And so um, we're able to tr triage relatively easily for clinicians, which they appreciate. They're like, oh, it's almost like form data coming back unless it needs to be something more. But even in that five to 10% non-standard, most of those are what we call elaborations. One of those elaborations was to the uh, a question about pain and the patient responded with two because Lucy, you're a genius. We saw that like, oh, this is really cool. And so we forwarded it to the practice owners and saying, hey, Lucy's obviously doing a great job with this patient, developing a really good relationship. That's uh, who knows what this can mean clinically, but at minimum, this is really cool. And what uh, they end up doing is sending that out to the entire practice. And so I don't know how many of those get, how, how many times does that recognition happen today in, in status quo? I'd say very, 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 very minimally, if ever, right? Maybe people write reviews, maybe they don't. Even then, do you believe it or do you just think it was a good review because you know the PT was watching you as you filled out the, the Google review and totally get that from a uh, top of the funnel, you know, all that. And being able to highlight some of those have been really good support for the uh, the soul on what we're doing is is the right thing. I think the last PT, uh, the second PT story I'll highlight is uh, we have a clinician that's gonna make about 10 to 15% more this year uh, in terms of, of compensation. And so they're going to add more or less a day in clinic without having to add a day in clinic. And I want to see that extrapolate out into all of our clinicians um, and, and those that we work with, because you're coming out of PT school with potentially $200,000 in student loan debt. And I think the last APTA report I saw was it's like 100K is, is the starting salary. That's a long, long time. You start running the numbers on that. It's going to take a long time to be able to get out from underneath that that burden. And so, anything we can do to help boost that, uh, you know, the 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 top line salary for uh, clinicians, it's a worthwhile endeavor. I'm going to say this assertively, and I'm curious if you want to just shoot it down. You're not going to hurt my feelings. But it, you know, when I think about when I think about RTM and sort of what you're talking about the next five years, but also the benefits now and stuff like that, if I was to oversimplify it, it sort of comes down to like the bull case and the bear case. So the bull case of RTM is, is that every, by, by, by 
embracing it now, the bull case of RTM is that the practice owner gets to gets that additional margin per patient, better patient outcomes, all the all the stuff, right? It's like it's like better, happier, healthier patients. Everybody wants that. And also you get paid more. It, it sort of all works out. That's the bull case. And maybe the bear case of, of embracing RTM is that if, let's say, there was another pandemic or another lockdown or something crazy like that, RTM could be the way you sort of protect yourself as sort of a hedge. Is that a fair statement? 100% on the, the, the bull case. And on, on the bear case, I would... I would say that or I don't even know if it needs to be a crazy event that that happens, right? You continue to see, you know, high deductible plans be more and more the norm, right? Um, and so, you know, potentially some more cost conscious patients that, that are coming in and being able to say, hey, we have this ability to get you better, quicker, faster um, with a, a low, lower total cost of care for you. And then you could maybe even say, well, if you can get really good at, one clinician being able to have a hundred patients on their panel instead of 30 or 40. Well, now you can start having some really interesting discussions with employers and other you know, groups and, and go direct and do contracting with them. Right. And that's where we were before these RTM codes came out is we were serving mainly physical therapy and athletic training companies that were in direct contracts with employers, high risk employers. Most of our, most of the people on our platform were firefighters. The vast majority. And so we were lucky that we were there pre these codes because it was all value based. I mean, they just got a check from like Indianapolis Fire, wrote a sizable, you know, multi-million dollar check to this group and said, Hey, take care of our all of our physical therapy and injury prevention needs, both for work comp and non-occupational, non-work comp. Go. We don't care. Like figure it out. And so I see there being more opportunities if you can say, okay, I can handle a higher caseload per clinician. Well, and I need fewer visits. Well, now can I go have conversations with maybe the local fire department, local employers, right? Or, or other groups or being able to do really, really cool things with senior living and, and other uh, areas like that. So I don't know if the bear case is protecting against a, a crazy event. I, I don't. I, that's. I wouldn't argue that, but I'd say helping create a more resilient revenue split, where you can have your insurance. You can have your insurance, and within that, you have your Medicare percentage. Like, okay, I want to optimize for thirty percent Medicare, forty percent commercial, but then I want this other chunk to be through direct contracting, cash services, whatever it is. And so you have this more fragmented revenue base that allows you to be more resilient to to anything that that happens. And again, speaking as like a non healthcare guy, one of the things we talk about in the on the investor side of the tech community is is that everything big almost always seems really divisive and almost toy like at the beginning, you know. And and, and there's no, and I don't mean that with any you know intent of offense to anybody or anything. All I'm saying is is that the fact that there seems to be so much division, at least perceived division around the acceptance of RTM in the conversations I've had. It sort of feels like when you invest in an early stage product or technology way years ago, whether it's like a Twilio or a SendGrid or something like that, way back then people were like, what? That's crazy. Or half the audience would be like, no, that's amazing. Right. And you're like, okay, that divisiveness or that, di that divide 
means like there's something there. Now it could go the other way, of course, but I don't know. You never bet against that. Like I think there's there's probably a larger trend there, and and um, I think I think practice owners that sort of get behind that and ride that wave. I think it's just smart. But anyway, you know, one thing we haven't talked about is uh, Sarah. So let's talk about Sarah Health. Why don't you tell us about Sarah Health? Give give us like the the two minute overview, and let's kind of talk about the business itself. So as you've said, you know, I, I you don't come from healthcare. I don't either. Uh, so this is my my first healthcare venture, which was a, a bug until it was a feature. And so I'm a frustrated patient. I've had a lot of physical therapy, blown out shoulder, knee. My first job was at Deloitte Consulting and being out of Kansas City meant connecting flights. So 150 to 200 flights a year, 16, 18 hours a day in a chair. That's the prescription for musculoskeletal pain. So had a lot of physical therapy, always loved my time in the clinic, but was so frustrated by the lack of continuity outside of it, especially traveling as much and, and, and all of that. And so that's where uh, i put the co-founding team together. So um, found our, our CTO and I was getting my MBA at UCLA. He's getting his master's in computer science. And our head of clinical has practiced at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota for uh, almost a decade now. So the triangle, right, of business, tech, and uh, clinical together, the holy trendy, if you will, in, in health tech. That's where it came from. And we honestly believed that if we made something wonderful for patients and providers, someone would pay for it. And we were right to a degree. Now, you've talked on the investor side. If you would have seen a true representation of what our total addressable market was pre these codes coming out, it was hilariously low. You wouldn't have touched it with a a 10-foot pole. But all we cared about was engagement. And, And some, I hear some people say like, oh, these RTM codes are home exercise codes. Like, no, there's nothing in there about home exercises. Not that that can't be a very you know, great way to grab data, but you're looking at it in like, okay, they can be home exercises, but it's an engagement code. The code doesn't say, oh, get patient home exercise program, get paid. It says give patient device, have them engage for 16 days in a 30-day period, get paid. So it's, a, it's an engagement code. It's not a home exercise code. That's just not it. And because we were so focused on engagement prior to these codes coming out and and didn't go down the route uh, that some of our competitors went down where they adopted like continuing education units or they went down MIPS or other things, which were brilliant at the time for them. Granted, looking if these codes wouldn't happen and be like, yeah, they did it right. We didn't. And, you know, the market chose what the market chose. But now that it's flipped. And it's all about engagement. Well, we've been measuring that for, for five years and optimizing for it. And so when, when these codes came out, we were just like, let's go. <laughs> this, this is great. And, and it's been a lot more fun uh, since then. You know, it's, a, it's a much easier business model, right? Um, so, that's, so then it was a feature, right? Uh, so it was a bug. My lack of healthcare experience was a bug because I – naively thought that if I created something amazing for patients and providers, there would be widespread acceptance, but without there being some sort of reimbursement behind it, that is very, very difficult. And now that there is reimbursement, it makes us look smart for having stayed the course through some, some difficult times, but let's be honest, we got a little bit lucky, but Hey, better be lucky than good. Super interesting story. I think one, one thing you're, as you were talking sort of makes me, um, think about this sort of like anecdotal idea that I've had for a while, which is that like school and business are two very different things, you know? And, and so 
and I'm saying this very broadly, I'm not trying to pick on medical professionals or anything like that, but you know, the gist of it is, is that in order for you to excel at school, you have to learn how to play that game really well. You have to take the test the right way. You have to, you know, learn the right thing, take the test the right way, you know, put in the time and, and do all those things. And then you get into like better and better schools or better, you know, that's how you progress. In other words, to win the thing about healthcare in general, and, and maybe most school in general is, is that in order to progress to the next level of education, you basically have to not only be smart, but look smart along the way. The interesting thing, or I think difference uh, when it comes to entrepreneurship, whether you're a practice owner, business owner like you, or you know whatever, is that in this line of work, you have to be willing to look stupid for a long amount of time. And so that's not articulated very well, but I think it's like an interesting sort of difference because I don't think it's talked about a lot. And maybe that's a different episode we'll do some other time. But again, the summary here is, is that whether you're a healthcare professional or like a tech person or whatever, it's like to play the game of school, to get those advanced degrees, you have to be smart and look smart. And that's the game you got to play. Whereas like when you're in business, whether you're running a practice or your company or mine or whatever, you kind of have to be comfortable with looking stupid, being wrong most of the time, that sort of thing, until all of a sudden you're not. Again, maybe that's a different discussion later, but uh, I think it's one of those things that's just not talked about a lot amongst practice owners. I mean, I don't, yeah, the things I'll hear practice owners say after two beers is very different than what practice owners will say, you know, when you just smash the record button and, you know, they're playing the the the, the brain power game or the smart the smart smart game, I guess. What are things that that kind of excite you that that you know, you're like, man, I wish more people would talk about or like, and, and, and the answer could be nothing, right? But I just want to kind of, you're living and breathing that whole RTM world. You're talking to these providers. You're probably hearing the no's and the yeses and the good stories and the bad ones. W what's not talked about that should be? This will be a, a bit of a, a biased answer uh, because we're really good at this. Uh, but the daily engagement rate and like how many patients you're actually getting billable. I, I don't, see that talked about um and we actually have it unless we've changed our website recently like all our daily response rate on our website and it's you know it's not quite as cool as your counter is because it's not as dynamic which i by the way really like that but and maybe it will be one day but right now on average we're getting responses from 70 percent of patients on any given day and so again this is an engagement code and it doesn't seem like people are talking about the engagement numbers. And, and I have a hunch as to why, and I know why we talk about it, because it's quite good. And, and I have a hunch as to why others don't. I, I don't think people are, are talking enough about that engagement and what that could mean. And there's other, there's other research that you can look at that shows that an engaged patient does have a better outcome, which, Right. It's not like it's, it's rocket science. Like, oh, OK, so a patient that feels more loved, more connected with their provider and, and more engaged in their own care plan gets better. Well, duh, uh, you can say it about anything, you know, whether that's a, a diet, a skill and a recovery plan. Absolutely. That's where I, I don't see enough people talking about the the engagement. The other thing that I've been seeing a lot recently is this inability to believe or this almost like reluctance or just complete stonewall to believe that this can be simple, right? And, and I think this is where the, the non-healthcare background comes in is I don't accept any of those things. Like, why can't it be easier? Well, I, oh, well, the clinician needs to bill it. 
okay, but how much easier can we make that on them? And what are those steps that they have to do? And, and how much time does that take? And where's their frustration? Where are the calories spent? And you just go through that process. And, and for us, I, I, I can speak for myself and my team, I mean, we're maniacal about it. Like, okay, so you have to click this, then you have to click this, then you have to click this. Why, 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 why? And does it have to be that way? Well, maybe not. Could we generate the documentation for you uh, that would make it much easier? Well, yeah, I guess that, that would probably work. And I still have to put it in my note and all that. I think that the whole idea that it has to be hard because it's healthcare is just a, you know, that's a hand wavy, like complete shirk of responsibility where no, it can be simple. It doesn't matter that it is healthcare. Yes, it's more complex. It's harder. Sure. But it absolutely can still be simple. And I think that's why we get along. Right. So, so well is we're both thinking about it in that way of like, I just don't prescribe uh, to this notion that it has to be hard because it's healthcare. At that point, you're done. You've given up. It's over. And instead, coming at it from a, just because it's healthcare, I don't believe it has to be hard. And, and coming at it that way. And yeah, a complete shirk of, of responsibility to say that. And you cannot convince me because I've been on the manufacturing floor at large uh, industrial manufacturers. I've been in the field with elevator service technicians. A lot of it is the same. I can tell you that plant manager doesn't want to put anything else on the, the guys and girls on the line. Absolutely not. It's the same exact thing. Yes, your product is different, but that reluctance and, and that fear of losing people because you put something else on them and knowing you have a few you have certain amount of chips to play right as as a practice leader and owner the same as a plant manager is like if i do too much change i'm going to really frustrate people and so if i could like that's and that's where we see our our goal is make it be as little of a chip that these practice owners have to play as possible and if we can align all the incentives well, then it's not a chip they really have to play at all. It's, hey, you guys think we should do this, right? Like, yeah, we should absolutely do this. All right, cool. I get to keep all my chips and you're happy. Fantastic. When practice owners kind of say, oh, well, I don't want to add one more thing to the provider. I don't want to do this or that. The subtle but sort of insidious thing I think about is, is like, I think it's just sort of a false excuse in the sense that like, the reality is, is that if that's the excuse then you're really just kicking the can down the road. Because like the reality is most practitioners, particularly like younger clinicians, stuff like that, they're thinking about their arc of their career. And so when people say, oh, well, I don't want to add one more thing to their plate. I mean, I get why they would factually say that. I'm not trying to like, you know, dismiss somebody's gut reaction or feelings or experience. But on the flip side, I don't know, it's kind of like sticking your head in the sand it's kind of like just sort of looking the other way and making some excuse to make yourself feel good. Like you're probably better off as a practice owner, just saying, I don't want to do it right now and just own that. <laughs> it's probably better to just own that than to kind of say, well, I don't want to add one more thing to your, to your providers or whatever. Cause the reality is, is that they're not practice owners, but they may want to be. And even if they don't want to be, they're thinking about the arc of their career and anybody thinking about their career is thinking about adding more skills and all that. So I don't know how to articulate it, but this 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 sort of excuse of I don't want to add one more thing to my practitioner sort of feels disingenuous. It feels like it's sort of masking the truth, which is I just don't want to do it right now. <laughs> and that's okay. Like let's just at least own it. 
maybe the the extra layer I'll bring in there is it feels like they're optimizing for the squeaky wheel, right? So on any bell curve, like any adoption curve, you're going to have your laggards, right? Now, your laggards are probably also going to be the ones that are the loudest in your clinic and don't want to do anything new because they don't want to do anything new. And so if I'm a practice owner, like or just an employer in general, right? Every team is going to have people that have different personalities, right? And if I want, if like, oh, we need to put this new piece of technology in because it's going to do X, Y, and Z, but I know that you know Tim is going to throw a fit about it. And and you can't replace Tim because there's a massive massive shortage, right? And you know Tim's gonna throw a fit and everyone else is gonna be somewhere between happy to meh, um, at least at the start. Well, if you're worried about that piece, and we've seen that play out where we'll have a few practitioners who just like, nope, don't wanna do it, don't like this, don't wanna do it, da-da-da-da, and, and they're typically pretty loud about it. Whereas you'll have the ones that are even crushing it that are just like, ah, I like it, I'm good, I'm gonna stay quiet because you know, it's not my job to convert the rest of the company. And so I think that understand that we've seen those dy- personal dynamics play out so often. So that's probably how we'll have to get better with our discussions with practice owners too of, yep, you're going to have some people that push back against this. It's going to happen. And you're going to have people that are really good at it that probably aren't going to say thank you. So like just know know that going into it and maybe that'll help change your, your calculus a little bit. Thanks for listening to another episode of Strata Stories. Strata is a single EMR platform and revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, speech therapy practices that helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. If you'd like to learn more about Strata, head over to stratapt.com or email us at hello at stratapt.com.